Will you pray with me? O oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So there's a statue in the United Nations garden, sculpted by a person. I'm going to do the best to pronounce the name. I think the name is Evgenie Vikatek. It is called, Let Us Beat Swords into Plowshares. And it, up here on the screen, you'll see it represents a man hammering a sword into the shape of a plow or a plowshare. In the words of the prophet Micah, Micah's vision is that in the days to come, the Lord's house will be established on the highest mountain, and all people will stream to it, that all will learn God's ways, and walk in God's path. And according to Micah, God's path is to beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Now, swords and spears are weapons of war. They are symbols of war and violence and dominance and power. On the other hand, plows, plows are instruments used to till the earth, and cultivate the soil. And pruning hooks are used for pruning plants to optimize their growth and productivity. So there are seven passages in scripture. I just want you to have a little context of that. Seven out of like 30,000, 20,000, I don't know. I'd have to look up the number, okay? That have been used so violently against LGBTQ people that they have earned this nickname of clobber passages. My friends, you use a sword or a spear or a club to clobber someone, not a plow, not a pruning hook. And on this Sunday where we are going to go and be present at Pride Parade, we're going to do our best to unclobber these scripture passages. We're going to do our best to turn these swords into plows. And since we're in this first service, I just want to say that I had this idea, and I was talking about it with the Chumway Forward team and the worship, uh, 9 o'clock worship committee, and they were like, that's great, Jill, let's do this. And especially Brian Johns, thank you very much for encouraging me. I don't even know if you remember that, but boy, that stuck in my head. And as I was working on this sermon this week, I thought, oh, dear God, help me. This is a lot in one sermon. So know that we're going to do some big picture stuff, and there's a lot more underneath all of these. But we're going to do this uncomfortable work of talking about these scriptures so we can better understand what they are saying and not saying, but also so that we can equip ourselves in how to respond when someone raises up one of these texts as a sword. Because just being silent and walking away or saying, I'd like to cut that part out of my Bible, it doesn't really help. And the people who wield these scriptures as swords talk about them a lot. And those who wish they were not wielded at sword, as swords fall silent. And so today, we're not going to be silent. 
But I do want to be clear up front that I'm not going to read them, the passages, aloud in their entirety, both for the sake of time, but also because of the way they have been used so hurtfully toward the LGBTQ community. I will summarize them. And if you want to read them verse by verse, please take time to do that on your own. Um, there is a handout available. Some of, some of you may have gotten it on the way in. If you want, you can get it on your way out that shows kind of a summary of the slides and it, it gives you the reference of the entire text. But what you will hear repeated over and over today is that when the Bible was written, the concept of a loving, committed, covenant relationship between two adults of the same sex did not exist. And I just want to be clear, in some ways, the concept of a loving, committed, covenant relationship between two adults of the opposite sex did not exist either. Women were treated as the property of men and seen as the inferior sex. Models of marriage and the Hebrew, and the Hebrew Bible, for the most part, do not meet our modern-day vision of what opposite sex relationships based on an ethic of equality and respect and love and mutuality should look like. So we must read the Bible and we must read these verses that have been used to condemn the LGBTQ community in particular very carefully. We have to learn from serious biblical scholarship, seek to understand what is being said, and how to apply it today. And so the first story that we're going to look at, the first sword-wielding clobber passage, is found in Genesis 19, the verses 1 through 14 and 24 through 26. So here's the summary. Lot is sitting at the city gate, and he meets two male angels, or messengers of God, and these two male angels say that they're going to spend the night in the city square. So Lot protests and insists that they have to come stay with him instead. He convinces them and they come to stay at his home. And that evening, a group of men bang on the door, demand that Lot send the visitors out so that the men can have sex with them. And Lot refuses. But he instead offers up to send out his two virgin daughters. The angels pull Lot back into the house. They save him from the mob of men. The daughters are also protected from being violated. And in the end, the angels destroy the city with fire and sulfur raining down from the skies. So the first thing we might notice from this story is that women were viewed as inferior to men in the ancient world. This is why Lot found it proper to offer his daughters instead of his male guests. Hospitality to the stranger, in particular the male visitor, was a high cultural value. And so these two views combined in such a way that Lot does something that we find unthinkable in offering his two daughters. Similarly, in the Near East and ancient times, male soldiers used to rape other men as a way to treat them like women 
to put them in the position of being inferior and therefore to humiliate them. This story of God of Sodom and Gomorrah is not describing or condemning consensual sex between two committed adults in a loving same-sex relationship. This story is describing and condemning gang rape, sexual objectification of people, and using sex to humiliate another person. What is perhaps even more interesting about this particular scripture is that the interpretation that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of same-sex acts was developed in the Middle Ages. This is not the original interpretation, and this is not a biblical interpretation. This story is actually interpreted within the biblical canon itself. And the condemnation of same-sex acts is not the sin that is named as the cause for the city's destruction. In the Hebrew Bible, in those texts, the sin that is described is ruthless acquisition of wealth, power, territory, oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the weak, and not showing hospitality. There's another scholar, Helminiac, who says it this way, the sin of Sodom is hard-heartedness, abuse, insult to the traveler, and inhospitality to the needy. So you can go look at these Old Testament scriptures that refer back to this story. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, in a couple places, Jeremiah, again, and Zephaniah. And in all of these Hebrew Bible passages, the sins of Sodom are injustice and oppression, partiality, adultery, lies, and encouraging evildoers. In addition to that, Jesus himself interprets this story. He interprets the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he doesn't say anything about same-sex acts. The first place in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15, this is a story we actually know well. We just never read this last part. In this part, Jesus is sending the disciples out two by two to spread the good news. And when he tells the disciples that some people might reject them, and that if that happens, they are to simply shake the dust off their feet and move on. You've heard this story, right? And at the end of it, Jesus says, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, it, it will be like Sodom and Gomorrah and their sins of rejecting God's messengers and not showing hospitality. In Matthew 11, 20 through 24, Jesus re refers to other cities that have received these, these messengers, these two-by-twos that have gone out to spread the gospel. And, and he says that some of these cities have not repented of their sin, and they have also rejected the messengers of God. They did not show hospitality to the strangers like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. This story of Sodom and Gomorrah is quite certainly a disturbing one, but it does not apply in any way to the LGBTQ community. The next one that I want to look at is Judges 19. This one is not always referenced, and yet it's kind of even more horrible. So I want to talk about it. 
Here's the summary. A man, his slave, and his concubine are traveling, and they decide to stay the night in a town called Gibeah. They're looking for someone who will offer them hospitality for the night. And after a long time of searching, they haven't found anyone. They've decided to stay in the city square. And finally, an old man comes up to them and begs them to stay in his home, not in the city square. They do. But during the night, a group of men surround the house and pound the door and demand to have sex with the male visitor. The homeowner denies them. But instead, he offers his virgin daughter and the man's concubine to be gang-raped instead. And the man's concubine is raped and abused all through the night in this story. She comes back to the house near dawn, and she falls down at the threshold where she dies. And similar to Genesis, this story highlights the rules and expectations of hospitality in the ancient culture, and it reinforces the low view of women. It showcases rape as a form of brutality and power, which we do still condemn today. And one of the metaphors that I like to use in thinking about what it means to read and interpret a scripture like this today is that sometimes we use the stories of scripture as a lens, like my glasses, something that we look through to see our world more clearly with eyes of compassion and love. Sometimes when we use these stories as a lens, they help us to know what we, to see what we need to do or who we need to be. But there are other times when we use the stories of scripture as a mirror, not as a lens. When we can hold the story up to the world that we live in today and see a reflection of what is being described in that story in our own current day and time. And when I read the story from Judges, my stomach turns and if I hold it up as a mirror to our life today, my questions become different, and they become things like, do we still see women treated as objects, as if they have no names and are not humans with dignity and rights? Do we still see women and women's bodies being sexualized and taken advantage of? Do we still see women's stories of abuse covered up in order to protect men? Yes, yes, and yes. And my friends, I want us to be clear as we think about this story and we think about it, using it as a mirror that statistics of sexual assault of women, both cisgender women and even more so for transgender women, are appallingly high today. This story from Judges is a mirror that I would rather not look into. But it is there. It happened then, and it happens now, and it is not okay. But we need to be clear. This story is not about condemning consensual committed relationships between two adults of the same sex. 
nor is it about a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. This story shows us sins of abuse of power, lack of hospitality, and objectification of the other who is deemed to be inferior. So the next two scriptures I'm going to lump together because they are very similar. Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. Both of them state that it is an abomination for a man to lie with a man as with a woman. So the first thing that we have to do is to understand the context of Leviticus. Leviticus is a book that I'm sure all of you love to read and have studied extensively. <laughs> this book recaps what we call the holiness code or the holiness law. And the main purpose of the holiness code, according to many scholars, including uh, this one I quoted earlier, Helminiac, is to set laws to keep Israel differentiated from the surrounding cultures. Now, the holiness code has to do what is clean and unclean. That doesn't have the same connotation as what is pure or gross, okay? It's not the same, clean and unclean. It has to do with setting the Israelite people apart from the surrounding cultures and to do this by not mixing a whole variety of things in the way that other, other cultures mixed them. So mixing things the way that other cultures did was called an abomination, meaning that it was unclean or it was forbidden. So I want to give you some examples. Leviticus 19.19 19 calls it an abomination to sow a field with two different kinds of seeds. Deuteronomy 22.11 said it is an abomination to weave cloth from two different kinds of fabric. And Leviticus 11 makes clear that eating shrimp, crab, pork, rabbit, and many other kinds of birds is an abomination. And animals were categorized by which sphere of the world they lived in, the water, the land, or the sky, and each sphere had specific rules of how the animals that lived in them were labeled clean or unclean. And they didn't want the animals to mix between those spheres. They were supposed to stay where they were supposed to be. And, and if they were deemed unclean, like the examples given, it was an abomination to consume them. So in addition, in nearby Canaanite and Egyptian cultures at that time, it was common for men to participate in fertility rites in their temple that included various forms of sex, including men having sex with men, men having sex with temple prostitutes, and men having sex with family members. The Canaanites in particular thought that these practices brought good luck from the gods to help their crops and their livestock production. In addition, just like we saw in the passages from Genesis and Judges, men having sex with men was seen as mixing the roles of men and women, and therefore it was defined as an abomination, just like mixing seeds in the field was an abomination. 
In Leviticus 18 and 20, the laws are there to reinforce the idea that the Israelites should never do what the Canaanites and Egyptians do because they are to be set apart and different from their neighbors. And yet, in Jesus' ministry, he was clear that he was not concerned with ritual purity or the holiness codes, but he was concerned with purity of the heart and a law of love. And in Acts 15, the early church leaders have a council to decide, what do we do with all these laws? And they make it clear that the Levitical codes and laws don't apply to the Gentiles. This is why Christian men don't need to be circumcised. This is why Christians don't follow a kosher diet. And this is why, among other things, we're not forbidden from wearing garments with mixed fabrics. This means that not only do Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 not describe consensual same-sex relationships between two adults like we see today, but we actually don't live by the entire rest of the Levitical Code. And there's no reason that we should try to live according to it on this one. So I want to move now to the New Testament, and this next sword-wielding clobber passage that we're going to look at is in Romans, chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Now this particular passage says that people gave up their lustful, gave into their lustful and degrading passions, and in particular, women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and men were consumed with passion for one another. Now, the first interesting thing to note, and Matthew Vines picks up on this in his book, God and the Gay Christian, is that the text implies the people who are being described are actually heterosexual, not gay or lesbian. And so with this in mind, Matthew Vines proposes that it's unnatural for a straight woman to have sex with another woman, and the opposite is also true, that it is unnatural for a lesbian woman to have sex with a man. The root of the problem that Paul is trying to address here is idol worship and temple prostitution. These were rampantly accepted in Roman culture, and lust was taking over people's sexual passions, and people were pursuing unbridled pleasure and participating in promiscuous sex with anyone available. And so what is being condemned here is this misuse of power as Roman elites overindulge their sexual appetites and over-sexualize their spirituality. Roman culture reinforced the norms that those in power could have sex with anyone as long as the hierarchy was maintained. This meant that men could have sex with any women they desired and any men they desired, as long as that man was lower on the social status than they were. For example, a conquered enemy, a slave, or a young boy. So one specific example that is shared in James Brownson's book, Bible, Gender, Sexuality, Reframing the Church's Debate on Same-Sex same Relationships, is where he writes about the central problem in Romans 1 is that lust becomes an idol. 
because it involves serving one's own self-seeking desires rather than worshiping the one true God. And Brownson describes the excessive lust by members of the Roman imperial court. And I want to give you just one example. The offenses of Gaius. He had sex with his sisters in front of his wife. He was also known for raping the wives of dinner guests and then returning to the table to comment on their sexual performance. In addition, he had a reputation for raping male members of the military as a way to humiliate them. Finally, a military officer who he had raped joined a conspiracy to murder him, and he was stabbed through the genitals when he was killed. Perhaps this is just one indication of how rampant and insidious lust had become in Roman culture and how important Paul found it to be to call it out and condemn it. It's also important to note that it is not at all clear what Paul is referring to when he says that women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. There wouldn't have been the same assumptions of honor and shame for women to have sex with each other. And the text doesn't actually explicitly state that that is what is happening. In Helminiac's analyzation of the text, he thinks it simply refers to other sexual practices that deviated from cultural norms of the day. The takeaway from Romans is that Paul is saying no to lustful idolatry, and he's also saying that when we pursue sexual passions in a way that dehumanize another and that consume our lives, then it negatively impacts our relationship with God and with ourselves and with each other. Paul's words simply do not apply to the kind of committed consensual relationships between two adults of the same sex that we see today. So the next sword-wielding clobber passage is in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. And in some ways, this has been one of the most hurtful and misused passages against affirmation and inclusion of LGBTQ people. Paul is listing sins that prevent people from entering the kingdom of God unless they repent. I just want to note that lying's on this list too, okay? But we're not going to talk, we're not going to go into that, but just keep that in mind. On the list are two words that have been mistranslated and misunderstood. And the first is malakoi, which is typically translated as male prostitutes. The second is arsenkoitai, which is typically translated as sodomites. The problem is that these are bad translations and they don't truly capture what Paul is trying to say. So we'll look at malakoi first. In general, this word could be something like soft, lack of self-control, weakness, laziness, cowardice, spineless, unable to stand up for justice or what matters. It is true that there can be a sexual connotation with this word when looking at how it is used in other places. And when you examine that pattern, they all point back to uncontrollable lust 
or Malakoy referring to the one being taken advantage of by someone in a higher social status. The second word, arsenkoitai, is a word that is used so rarely in ancient Greek literature that some people believe Paul made it up, especially since it's also used in 1 Timothy, which some people think Paul wrote, or at least someone wrote it who was pretending to be Paul. In other places where this word is used, and rarely, it references abuses of the poor or economic exploitation and power abuses. So when you take Malakoi and Arsenkoitai together, the most likely thing is that they imply pederasty, which was very common in Greek culture. This practice, practice was popular among elite elder Greek men who would adopt young boys to use as sexual objects. Others believe that the two used together could refer to forcible male-on-male rape. We would continue to name both of these sexual practices as sinful today. What we are sure of is that this does not refer to committed, loving, consensual same-sex relationships, nor is it a blanket condemnation of the sexuality or gender identity of LGBTQ persons. The last one, the last one, 1 Timothy 1.10. This one is similar to 1 Corinthians in that Paul, or whoever was pretending to be Paul, I don't actually think it was Paul, but is listing out sins. And the list includes three words that have proven to be difficult to translate and interpret properly. The three words in Greek are pornos, arsenkoites, and andropodistis. Now, pornos most likely refers to something more like adultery, males having sex outside of marriage. Arsenokoites is a different tense of the word that we just saw in 1 Corinthians that indicates a dominant male in a same-sex relationship that involves exploitation, inequality, and abuse. And the last one, andropodistes, could be translated more like slave trader or is sometimes translated as kidnapper. So according to James Bronson, scholars think that the best interpretation when these three are used together is to describe a sexually exploitive system that we would still condemn today. The slave traders, the andropodistas, were acting as pimps and kidnapping young boys, the pornos, who would be sold to and taken advantage of five powerful men, the arson coitus. This is talking about sex trafficking. Those who are being sold are the victims of a sinful system, and those buying and selling the young boys are participating in a sinful system that we continue to condemn today. This is not the same as loving, committed, consensual relationships between two adults of any gender. 
Did you hear that message over and over? None of these seven clobber passages that we talked about today describe or condemn a loving, committed, consensual relationship of mutual respect between two adults of the same sex. So I want to close by coming back to the scripture from Micah 4. Because in verse 4 of Micah 4, this is what the prophet says. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. My friends, Christians have used these scriptures as swords for too long. For too long. Christians have used these scriptures as a way to make people afraid. And too many LGBTQ people are so afraid of God and of the church and of the Bible and of us. So what I want to encourage you to do is don't be silent anymore. When you hear these scriptures being used as a sword or a spear to clobber someone, whether you know that person or not, speak up. You have something to say. Turn the sword into a plow. Be part of the people who proclaim loudly, You don't need to be afraid. God loves you. You are beautiful and beloved just as you are, a person of sacred worth. Thanks be to God. Amen.